0: Thank you so much, Shell, and good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again for part two of our three-part series on real relationships. You'll see on screen that our focus today is on singleness and marriage. That's the short version of the title, and I think of it in the longer form as honoring singleness and marriage in a lonely world that loneliness in our world as it relates to singleness and relationships was brought home to me again, uh, just recently in a scene from a popular TV comedy. A single woman had just gotten back together with her boyfriend and one of her friends said to her, but I thought you broke up. Why would you get back together with him? And the young woman replied, well, yeah, I got back together again with him. I just didn't want to be alone. For New Year's Eve. So, part one of our series in January was forging friendship in a lonely world. I noted that in an Ipsos poll last year, 54% of Canadians said they felt lonely or isolated, not just for New Year's Eve, but just as part of their life, 54% of Canadians. And of course, the ongoing pandemic with the physical distancing and restrictions on gathering in person has contributed to that sense of isolation. Yet even during this time, even during COVID, we can forge real friendships and be in community with one another and with God. So for part one, we took a closer look at the New Testament book of Philemon and what we could learn about forging friendship. Today, we focus on honoring singleness and marriage, but instead of concentrating on just one book of the Bible, we'll survey a number of biblical texts from God's original intention in creation to the teaching of Jesus to the experience of the early church. There's much more that could be said about singleness and marriage, and you can definitely dive deeper in your home church discussion. So today is really just a beginning, just a catalyst for that, as we look at honoring singleness and marriage. Then next month in March, we'll turn to valuing family. In a recent article in The Atlantic, David Brooks notes how the family has changed over the years from the big interconnected, extended family that has fragmented then into the nuclear family of parents and children. And he writes, in many sectors of society, nuclear families fragmented into single parent families, single parent families into chaotic families or no families. So in that changing family context, what might we learn from scripture about valuing family? So there's more to come, but for today, we turn to honoring singleness and marriage. The title comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, which says, Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. More literally, the original Greek in this letter says, Marriage must be honored by all. That includes everyone, not just those who are married, but those who are single, those who are divorced or widowed, satisfied or dissatisfied with our marital status. Immediately before this verse, the letter encourages the believers with these words, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated, as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. And it's after those verses that the text says, give honour to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. So in the book of Hebrews, honouring marriage is part of a way of life for everyone. That includes honouring brothers and sisters in the Christian community, honouring strangers, It's part of an entire network of relationships that includes those in prison and includes those who are mistreated. We are to be faithful in all of our relationships, and we are to be faithful in marriage. To this, the book of Hebrews adds a warning. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. The word adultery literally means breaking wedlock or breaking marriage. And we might think immediately of adultery as a physical and sexual breaking of marriage, but it may also be an affair of the heart where we start giving the love and the time and attention that should go to our marriage partner to someone else. Jesus said anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That too is breaking wedlock or breaking marriage. When we honor marriage, there is no place for cheating or abuse or violence. So the opposite of adultery is not only physical and sexual faithfulness. It's faithfulness in the way we love and value our partner. Faithfulness in the way we spend time with one another and speak well of one another. Faithfulness in the way we pay attention and support one another. The Old Testament includes a similar warning against adultery in Exodus 20, verse 14. You must not commit adultery. This is just one of the Ten Commandments. And it's sandwiched between you must not murder and you must not steal then between those two it says you must not commit adultery just as in the book of hebrews this word is for everyone in the community and it's part of a larger vision of human relationships a larger vision of healthy community for when faithfulness in marriage is broken it affects both marriage partners it affects any children it affects other family members, brothers and sisters and parents. It affects friends, it affects the church at large. It can disrupt and destroy healthy community. The Old Testament goes even further to speak of adultery as breaking faith with God. The first commandment says, you must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind Or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea you must not bow down to them or worship them for i the lord your god am a jealous god in the bible that exclusive relationship between god and god's people is often portrayed as a marriage it's here in the ten commandments where god is a jealous god And it's also in the New Testament, where the church is referred to as the Bride of Christ. When that exclusive relationship is broken, the Bible even refers to it as adultery. So the prophet Isaiah says, The people of the land commit adultery by being unfaithful to the Lord. Being unfaithful breaks the relationship between God and people. And in the same way, being unfaithful can break a marriage. In our individualistic society today, we might tend to think of honoring marriage in a more individual sense that I should honor my marriage and you should honor your marriage. But the Ten Commandments goes further. The last commandment says this, you must not covet your neighbor's house You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So for healthy community, we not only honor our own marriage, we also honor our neighbor's marriage by not coveting our neighbor's wife, not coveting our neighbor's husband. Do not commit adultery is not only about how we treat our own spouse, It's also about how we treat our neighbor in the wider community. If we love our neighbor, we will honor our neighbor's marriage, our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's husband. We will treat other people as neighbors, not as objects for sex. So to honor marriage and honor singleness, don't sexualize or objectify your relationships. In our culture today, sex is used to sell clothing, sell cars, hamburgers, just about everything else. But using sex in that way takes it out of its proper context of marriage. It separates it from the long-term love and care and respect that allows sex and intimate relationship to flourish. And reducing people to sex objects does a disservice to them as our neighbor. As people, we are to love as whole people, to love as we love ourselves. So to honor marriage, we are to be faithful to our marriage partner, and we are to be faithful to our neighbor. To honor marriage also means to choose wisely in the first place. As a pastor, whenever I've been asked to perform a wedding, part of my role has also been to offer premarital counseling where I talk with a couple about marriage expectations that they might have, about communication, about family, about friends, about spiritual beliefs, and other areas of married life. And we have that conversation not because I have all the answers, or because I need to talk about these things, but because the couple needs to choose wisely. They need to consider these things. Some areas they may have already discussed and have already worked out whatever might need to be worked out. Other areas they might not have talked about yet, or they might find it difficult to talk about. And it can be helpful to have a third party to be part of the conversation, to help them choose wisely. In the creation story of Genesis 2, when the man and the woman meet for the first time, the man says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Those words are a deep recognition of their unity and partnership, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And if we're to choose wisely in marriage, we need to ask ourselves some deep questions. Is this someone that I respect and who respects me? We might love one another in a romantic sense, and we might want to be together in a physical sense, but do we actually like each other? Will this person allow me to grow? And can we grow together? Is this a person that I want to grow old with? Are we partners, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? After this recognition in Genesis, the text goes on to say, for this reason, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. I've always found that wording kind of unusual because in biblical times, it was customary for the wife to join her husband's family, and they would live together as one large clan. But even when the man might not physically move away from his family, he still, in a sense, leaves his father and mother and joins with his wife to become a new unit. They have a new relationship, and they need to leave the families of their childhood and youth to form that even today if a couple may not physically leave their families even if they live with one or the other sets of parents in a sense they will leave as they become one with their new partner they have a new bond that is meant to last a lifetime as author george sweezy writes it is not destiny that makes a person the one true love it is life it is the hardships that have been faced together It is bending over sick beds and struggling over budgets. It is a thousand goodnight kisses and good morning smiles. It is vacations at the seashore and conversations in the dark. It is growing reverence for each other, which comes out of esteem and love. So to honor marriage, we need to make that kind of lifelong commitment and commit for better or worse. The traditional marriage vows are for better for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health marriage is a relationship that embraces all of those experiences and more it's not just an economic relationship it's not just a relationship based on appearance in the history of marriage it has sometimes been treated in those ways Royalty have sometimes entered marriage to maintain their power or to forge a new alliance. The wealthy have sometimes entered marriage to preserve or to enlarge their land holdings. But that was not God's intention for marriage. In Genesis 2, God created the first human being. But because that first man was lonely, God created a woman. Together, the man and the woman were to be in relationship with God and relationship with one another. Together, they were to share the work of caring for the earth and raising children. That was God's original intention for marriage. It was for companionship, for partnership and working together, for nurturing family, for being in right relationship with God. You can't get that kind of relationship with another person in a one night stand or in a six month relationship or in a series of six month relationships that kind of loving living growing relationship takes a lifetime to build with just one person one time the pharisees tried to draw jesus into a debate that they were having about divorce what Are the right reasons that make divorce permissible? What are the reasons that don't make divorce permissible? But instead of getting caught up in their religious debate, Jesus was not so much interested about how to get out of marriage, but God's intention. He went right back to the basics, right back to the story of creation to talk about God's original plan. Don't you know, he said to them, that in the beginning the Creator made a man and a woman. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and gets married. He becomes like one person with his wife. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. No one is to come between a husband and wife. Not the Pharisees with their debates not mother-in-law not father-in-law not best friend not employer not even children in fact it's been said that one of the best things that parents can give their children is a loving and committed relationship with one another as husband and wife john and betty dresher who have been married over 40 years with five married children and 12 grandchildren they say this we know that when our children see us as lovers, our relationship with them is at its best. We now realize that only as our children see our deep love for each other, can they understand the meaning of true love and eventually the meaning of God's love. Marriage is a sacred and lifelong relationship that takes commitment. Marriage is so sacred that for Jesus, even lust was a kind of adultery. For him, divorce and remarriage was a kind of adultery. In fact, Jesus set such a high standard for marriage that his disciples protested. They said, if that's how it is between a man and a woman in marriage, then it's better not to get married. Their protest sounds remarkable remarkably contemporary if marriage is so hard then why gets married at all why not just stay single why not just live together after all weddings are so expensive the rate of divorce is so high and besides who can ever be sure that love will last when his disciples objected jesus replied not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. In other words, as the message puts it, marriage isn't for everyone. Jesus continued some from birth, seemingly never give marriage a thought, others never get asked or accepted, and some decide not to get married for kingdom reasons. Today as well, Marriage isn't for everyone. According to the latest statistics in Canada, just 38% of adults are married and not separated. Others are single or widowed, separated or divorced, or live in common law. Each of us will be single for part or all of our lives. So we might ask, as much as we are to honor marriage, what might it mean for us to honor singleness as well. Now in the Old Testament, unlike in Canada, most people were married. Marriage was assumed. In fact, the Hebrew word for man and woman were the same words used for husband and wife. A man was normally a husband. A woman was normally a wife. Yet there are also many stories in scripture of people who were single and whose faith and devotion to God made a difference like the unnamed widow who was also a single mother who gave food to the prophet elijah jeremiah who began his prophetic ministry as a single young man naomi and her daughter-in-law ruth were both widows who became part of the ancestral line that would one day lead to the birth of jesus the 84 year old anna who met the infant jesus when his parents brought him to the temple and who then went on to speak about jesus to everyone that she met in the world of the bible many of those who were single had been widowed and the bible shows great care for widows when harvesting your crops the old testament law said leave some grain in the fields for the foreigners for the widows for the orphans in Proverbs, God protects the property of widows. In the Psalms, God is called the defender of widows. The prophet Jeremiah urged to the people, be fair-minded and just. Do what is right. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppressors. Quit your evil deeds. Do not mistreat foreigners, orphans, and widows. Stop murdering the innocent. And once again, you can see how the care of those who were single, those who were widows, was part of a larger way of living as a healthy community. It was part of justice. It was part of doing what is right. This care for those who became single through widowhood carries over also into the New Testament. Jesus raised a young man who had died and returned him to his mother. Who was a widow jesus spoke positively of a widow's persistent seeking after justice as an example of persistence in prayer the book of james says pure and genuine religion in the sight of god the father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you jesus was single while some have tried to reimagine Jesus as a married man, there's simply no evidence of that. If Jesus had a wife and children, there would likely have been some mention of them, just as the Bible mentions his sisters and his brothers. I can't help but wonder if Jesus was talking about himself when he said that some decided not to get married for kingdom reasons. For certainly, Jesus was fully engaged. In the kingdom work that God had called him to Jesus called single people like the woman of Samaria who was living with her partner but who put her faith in Jesus and later went on to be an evangelist of her whole town some of Jesus best friends were single like Mary Martha and Lazarus who apparently shared a household in Bethany as two single sisters and their brother. The Apostle Paul, who was a single evangelist and church planter. In the early church, Philip the evangelist had four single daughters with a gift of prophecy. But none of these single people were simply marking time, waiting for their better half to come along. As singles, they were serving God and serving the church. They were reaching out to other people. They were whole people, just as single people today are whole people. In fact, the Apostle Paul went even further, not only valuing and caring for those who were single. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. I like the way the message puts it. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. Being married and being single are both gifts. And so the apostle says in the same chapter, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. So if you're married, he says, then practice mutuality. Practice partnership where husband and wife fulfill each other's needs. If you're not married, then don't seek after marriage. Whether you're single or married, it is a gift from God. So to honor both singleness and marriage don't determine value according to marital status. Each of us is precious to God as individual people. Our worth does not depend on our marital status, but on God's love for us. And that doesn't change whether we're single or married. We don't need to think less of ourselves if we are single, or less of other people who may be single. Singleness is a gift, and its giver is God, who loves us and who counts us precious. So in the church, we cannot determine a person's worth by marital status. Instead, we need to realize that each person, married or single, is worthy and precious to god loved by god and each person married or single is worthy and precious and has something special to contribute to our community together a young single woman from north america went to teach english in zambia and was part of a church there during her term of service She noticed something different about the church and about the worship service compared to her own church in North America. In North America, she had been used to a church where people who were married generally sat with their spouses. But in the Zambian church, the people didn't sit in couples or even in family groupings of some kind. Instead, it was the women who sat together in one section There was another section for the choirs. There was another section for those with young children. Because of that seating arrangement, she had a hard time figuring out which church members belonged to which family, who belonged together. So she asked the pastor, why do the people sit in this way? And he explained to her that in his church, they had this tradition of sitting in groups to protect the widows and those divorced from feeling alone and isolated that was their way of caring for those who were single among them and of making sure that they felt welcome in the church that they weren't wondering where they should sit because everybody was sitting as couples this way they had a place in the church to honor singleness don't equate marriage with maturity You may have heard the expression, I'm not ready for marriage, or so-and-so is not ready for marriage. It suggests that a successful marriage requires a certain level of maturity. And that's true, of course, to choose wisely and to make a lifelong commitment for better or worse, to be faithful to your marriage partner, takes some maturity. But being a successful single, also requires a certain maturity. It takes a healthy level of self-discipline to be celibate. It takes a level of independence to maintain one's own household as a single person. Maturity is not a quality exclusive to married people. There are immature married people just as there are immature single people. And there are mature singles just as there are mature married people. To honor singleness, we need to treat single people as whole people. We need to treat married people as whole people too, not only as one half of a couple, but as we honor singleness, don't focus only on the matter of being single. Single people are whole people, so express interest in their work in their activity in the church, their recreational activities, their hobbies. Don't treat single people as if their only goal in life is to find a marriage partner. And for single people, don't make finding a marriage partner your only goal. Life is much bigger than that. So for example, in the church I used to pastor, they used to ask for two couples to serve as greeters in the church foyer on Sunday mornings. But they came to realize that single people could serve as greeters too. And they also realized that not every husband and wife were both interested in that kind of greeting role. As one single adult said, the lack of single persons being asked to serve in certain responsibilities, such as greeters, elders, or youth sponsors, only says to the single person that he or she is not as important or responsible as a married person. So the church began to say instead, we're looking for four volunteers to help with greeting. Not just two couples, four volunteers. Their change in language opened the door for singles to volunteer and made it clear that they too were valued and welcomed to participate. Back in the days before COVID, when we were all allowed to eat together, the church also used to have round tables for potluck meals that were normally set with eight chairs. But at a meal, our tables didn't always need to have an even number. So we started having seven chairs or nine chairs at a table to make it easier for a single person to find a seat we encouraged married and single people to mix as part of being a healthy community together. That included maintaining friendships with those who became suddenly single through divorce or death of a spouse. In those cases, sometimes it can be difficult to know what to say, but caring for the suddenly single is part of that biblical model of caring for widows. Continue to greet that suddenly single person. Continue to include them in your circle. If they need to talk about their loss, let them talk. If they need to be silent, let them be silent. If they need to cry, let them cry. If they need to do something fun with you, then go and have a good time together. Don't drop your friendship because they are now alone. Now in his letter to the Corinthians, the reason Paul wished everyone were single was because it would help them serve God. He wrote, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please the Lord. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided in the same way a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit but a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband he says I am saying this for your benefit not to place restrictions on you I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best, with as few distractions as possible. With these words, Paul meant to encourage those who were single, not to restrict them from marriage, but to help them appreciate the gift of their singleness as a time to devote themselves to God. But I wonder today, is it really easier for a single person to give undivided devotion to God. That might have been true in the world that Paul lived in. At the time when 1 Corinthians was written, single people often lived with other family members and were supported by them. But those who are single today might question Paul's assumption here. For unlike the singles of Paul's time, many singles today live alone and they maintain their own households They have to earn their own living, organize their own household, do all their own chores. Unless they live with other family members or have roommates, they may have to work harder at maintaining family connections and establishing other personal relationships. Being single today is not exactly free of concern and uncomplicated, even if it may have been in Paul's time. But although our culture around being single and married has changed over the centuries, Paul's message remains the same. His point is that married or single, our concern should be undivided devotion to God. That call is something we all have in common, and it's a challenge to all of us, whether married or single. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't set out one commandment for those who are single and another commandment for those who are married. For all of us, he said, this is the greatest commandment. Love God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. As we seek to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Honoring singleness and marriage is part of that. So may we choose wisely and make a lifelong commitment to our marriage partner for better or worse. May we see others as whole people, whether they are married or single. May we treat others as neighbors, not sex objects. May we honor our neighbor's marriage as we honor our own. In all our relationships, may we be faithful and may we seek to love God with an undivided heart and soul and mind and strength. Let's join together in prayer. Almighty and gracious God, we seek to honor you in our worship and to follow you in all of life. Whether we're married or single or feel that we're somewhere in between, whatever our circumstances, whatever our struggles, help us to love you and love our neighbors as ourselves. By your mercy, enable us to be faithful to you, faithful to our marriage partner, faithful as singles, faithful friends, faithful as brothers and sisters, forgive us when we fail, move us to true repentance and reconciliation. Thank you that when we are struggling, when we are not sure of the way forward, that you are our refuge and strength and a help in times of trouble we pray in the name of Jesus amen